I have vivid memories of Sam's barbershop. I would tag along with my dad and sometimes with him and my grandpa on Saturday mornings when they would get their hair cut by Sam the barber. Sam would always have a piece of bazooka bubblegum for me and I'd love to sit in the second barber chair raised as high as the foot pump would go. From here I could watch him laugh and work, comb in one practiced hand and razor sharp shears in the other. He worked fast and effortlessly as he engaged with his customers in the chair and those waiting, telling stories and jokes. His shop on 2nd Street served three generations of customers before he retired, offering cheap haircuts but also much more. I associate Sam's Barbershop with images of my father and grandfather being together. Two men who did not always have the same worldview found commonality there, where Sam treated every customer the same. For a short time on those Saturday mornings, I would get to be part of this gathering of men who I love and admire. Sam did not get rich from the barbershop, but he made a living and built a life. Sam's barbershop epitomizes the importance of Main Street. It was not just about business for Sam, but about people. He created a community within his barbershop, and for this we are all much richer. This is just one of the many experiences with small businesses and the people behind them that have enriched my life. I am sure you have them too. This episode of the Designing a Humane Future podcast is dedicated to small businesses, to exploring the future of our Main Street shops, and understanding ways to ensure that they can continue to be part of our communities and our lives now and looking ahead. Welcome to the Designing a Humane Future podcast. My name is Sarah Tranum, and I'm the host of this series that explores some of the most complex challenges we face and examines them through a design and systems thinking lens. The goal of the podcast is to better understand deep systemic issues and to learn about the socially innovative approaches being used to address and resolve them and that can help us design a more humane future for everyone. As we've all experienced, the pandemic had significant impacts on our communities, especially in small businesses. Some did not survive lockdowns and other ripple effects of the coronavirus. Others were able to pivot in interesting, creative ways and have come through the last two years perhaps battered but even more resilient. This ability to adapt will be even more important as we move into the post-pandemic world that, according to several experts, has accelerated predicted changes in the retail realm by at least five to ten years. While no one knows for sure what lies ahead for businesses, for those who own them and those of us who shop at them, there are many ideas about what the consumer experience and store of the future might look like. In this episode, we explore these possible future trends and learn from those involved in running and championing small business every day. We'll look at the challenges facing small businesses and some of the solutions that are helping them to navigate the uncertainties now and that can allow them to thrive into the future. Let's start with the good news coming out of the pandemic. It has raised the profile and important role of small businesses along the Main Street areas of our communities. These businesses worked at the front lines, serving the public during an incredibly challenging time. As the pandemic continued to unfold and evolve, they had to navigate this uncertainty, often with limited resources. Their continued presence provided a needed anchor in our communities as the storm of COVID-19 raged on. This stability during an unstable time did not go unnoticed. I had the opportunity to speak with Judy Morgan, who has many years of experience working with retailers and championing Main Street business areas. She discusses the renewed focus on supporting small business. 
My name is Judy Morgan, and the name of my company is Judy C. Morgan Consulting. The pandemic has really been a game changer on many, many fronts. But what I was surprised at and very delighted to see was awakened appreciation for the value that independent businesses and our main streets bring to our communities. When the lockdowns happened in early 2020, Suddenly, there was just this outcry about, oh, my goodness, our streets are deserted. What's going to happen to our small businesses? I've long worked with main streets and small businesses, but sometimes you felt like you're a voice in the wilderness, kind of, because the industry doesn't really think that they are viable in many instances or important. And it's been a bit of an uphill battle in some times in the past, but that certainly hasn't been the case in the last two years. And then uh, another thing that's sort of a rediscovery of the principle that people value community and like having local services within a 15-minute walk. So the whole idea of the 15-minute city has been reborn. And although we called it something different in the past, building communities where everything was integrated has come and gone as a planning principle over 100 years. And here it is again. Now we're rediscovering the idea of 15-minute city. So that was interesting to see. I think the pandemic has also brought more awareness and attention to the needs of minority communities and included within that minority-owned businesses. I think because of the public attention to all of these things, there's certainly been more government and big business attention and investment in all of the above. For the first time in my recollection, the federal government has invested in retail and has invested in the Toronto area in terms of providing grants to help small businesses and main streets survive the pandemic and build back stronger. This heightened awareness and appreciation for small business in our communities is important, but must move beyond just words. For these businesses to survive and hopefully thrive, they need more than just pats on the back. There are many real challenges for businesses to navigate now and looking ahead. To better understand some of the obstacles businesses are facing in Toronto and other communities across Ontario and beyond, I spoke with Anita Agrawal. Anita is a well-established and respected entrepreneur who recently co-authored a report for the Better Way Alliance that raises the alarm about skyrocketing commercial rents that are threatening to put businesses out of business. My name is Anita Agarwal, and I'm the founder of the brand Jewels Forever. We're a Toronto-based jewelry manufacturing company in business for 31 years. And I'm also a part-time professor at Centennial College at the School of Business. I co-authored this report with Jolene Pierce, a small business owner, and also was the former director of BWA. Basically, this is an issue that has been troubling me since 2008, basically. So I realized when I was at uh, Dundas Square, which is like basically one of the biggest intersections in Canada. So my office was there and every year our rent would increase and not just by like a couple of hundred dollars, often a couple of thousand dollars. And so every time our lease was up for renewal, it would go up quite a bit. The other thing that I noticed was that because our building was built in the 1800s and it was a historic building, despite the fact that there was well over 100 tenants in the building, there was a constant disarray and disrepair. So literally plaster would be falling off the ceilings. There would be pipes that would burst. It would be frozen. There would be a big sloppy mess all the time. And the heating would not work in winter. The cooling wouldn't work in summer. And there was actually a huge disregard 
for any kind of upkeep or maintenance. And it wouldn't matter how much I advocated for it or how much I would go to the landlords and complain. There was just no response. I realized that this was not just my problem. I reached out to my MP, my MPP, my city councillor, and they all told me the same thing. They were like, oh, well, there's really nothing you can do. Anything that you can do is in outlining your lease. And you'd go to your lease and it was written by guess who? Your landlord. So I realized quickly that there's actually absolutely no commercial tenants protection in Ontario. In fact, the Commercial Tenancies Act has not been updated since 1992, I believe. So this has been an issue that I've been really trying to figure out since then. What happened in 2014 when our rent was up for renewal again, they raised it from $4,800 to $6,200. And I was like, okay, this is really getting way too much. But also, again, the disrepairs, the pipes bursting constantly. I remember this one time in February, our pipes burst, and it was like February, so the middle of winter, and there was water everywhere, and there was no heating for two weeks. My staff did not want to come to work. All our productivity was gone, and it was just a complete a nightmare. What led me to write this report was realizing because of the lack of protection, there must be other people that are facing the same thing. And then all of a sudden, in like maybe 2015, I started paying more attention to small articles on local blog sites like BlogTO and, you know, Narcity and stuff. And I noticed that there was a lot of other businesses that started closing because their rent would go up 300%, you know, 200%, 100%. It was just wild. I was like, okay, your lease goes up for renewal and your rent is just you know, ridiculous. One of my favorite restaurants closed. Their rent went from $3,000 a month to 9000 And this is in Kensington Market, this kind of local bohemian type of neighborhood. I'm as astronomical. If that happened to residential tenants, you'd be really worried. And then I discovered that there was hundreds of businesses all across Ontario that were facing the same thing. I approached the BWA, which I had been a part of since um, the last five years. And I had started working with them on the minimum wage campaign, paid sick days, stuff like that. Basically, things that we believe that are important economically for small businesses, but also for workers. And I was like, well, I think, you know, Jolene, this is an issue that nobody's touched. And we were right. Nobody has touched this. This is uh, kind of unprecedented. When we look at our report, people aren't advocating for this. And if you go walk around any neighborhood in Toronto, buildings are constantly going up. But guess what? There are all of these small businesses are also closing down and there's tons of vacant space despite buildings constantly being built, but no landlord wants to rent it out. A lot of landlords are holding on to these small office units because they think they can get either premium rents or they can sell it to a condo builder. This is a problem across the board. So basically, We really wanted to advocate for this issue and we wanted to address the fact that there are no protections and we wanted to make these recommendations. So we put it out to our members. Uh, Our members responded to the survey, the findings of which you can find on commercialrent.ca. So the report is available to the public and there's also, you can sign on our petition as well. The Better Way Alliance, or BWA, is made up of business owners from across Ontario who, quote, understand that raising employment standards and creating good jobs is good for business and the economy, end quote. 
The BWA supports better minimum wage standards and paid sick leave, among other issues that impact small businesses and their workers. In Canada, small businesses employ 9.7 million people, or about two-thirds of the total labor force, and contribute 38% of the GDP. They are the lifeblood of the country. A common myth is that higher minimum wages for workers is the biggest concern for owners and leads to more shuttered businesses. First, wages are not the main worry, but rent increases, as Anita discussed, are heavy on their minds. Second, it's been shown that workers who get a pay raise put it back into the local economy, leading to an increase in spending at local businesses. As BWA member businesses do their part to create decent work and contribute significantly to the economy, they are also navigating various threats to small businesses that are preventable. Erin Binder is a successful entrepreneur and active member of the Toronto business community. In addition to rising commercial rent rates, Erin discusses the increasing cost of insurance and the threat it poses to small businesses. My name is Aaron Binder, and I am one of the two new directors of the Better Way Alliance. I'm also the Chief Experience Officer at Segway of Ontario and GoTours Canada. One of the other big unexpected costs that has risen for a lot of businesses is insurance. And it's another one of those things that is highly unregulated. And even in my business, we're now paying three times the amount we did in 2020 for half the coverage. And I know we're not the only one out there. It's a huge issue. We're seeing this in multiple industries, not just ours. You're hearing it from Anita. So I think that is going to be another big point for a lot of businesses. Some other groups will say it's, it's wage increases. We completely disagree with that based on the fact that most small businesses, most retail businesses that are owned and operated by local folks actually already pay above the minimum by at least a couple of bucks. So we're not seeing that as a huge concern for a lot of our business members and even for non-members that I speak with. But for, the, for most, of our, most of the folks that we're speaking to, it is the rent, it is the insurance, just the general cost of goods as well, which has driven increases for service-based companies too. So we're seeing a lot of cost increases almost everywhere. But like I said, when we're talking to small businesses, not even just small businesses, when we're talking to medium and and even large-sized businesses, it's certainly the cost of insurance, the cost of rent. Those are the two big ones that we're seeing. Business improvement areas, or BIAs for short, are Toronto invention that started in the 1970s. Now you can find BIAs across Canada. John Kiru has been involved with small businesses for over four decades. I spoke to him about the role of BIAs and the challenges that businesses in the BIAs are facing. My name is John Kiru. I'm the executive director of the Toronto Association of BIAs. There has been significant changes in what is happening in our local retail sectors, on our main streets. Some of the key ones really were property taxes have become challenging even before the pandemic as main streets have shifted, as policies in the city have shifted in terms of redevelopments and and impacts assessed values have increased. And as by extension, the property taxes have increased. Where we've seen over the years, the per square foot cost of operating, of renting a property is now in some cases surpassed by the per square foot cost of taxes in some of our neighborhoods across the city. 
So the cost of doing business in a place like Toronto has shifted significantly. That's sort of one of the things that has changed. The, the biggest shift is obviously consumer habits in terms of, especially more recently, even before the pandemic, but certainly through the pandemic, and that is digitization. In the 60s, when the BIA movement started, and like I said, established in 1970 in Blue West Village, there was a shift at that time as well, which is what caused the development of BIAs. At that time, the local malls started to open, and as consumer habits shifted to the controlled environment of a mall where um, you know things were safe, air-conditioned, small businesses had to shift and mimic what was going on over there, and hence the development of the BIA movement. So small businesses are very resilient. They dealt with the challenges by creating these BIAs and collectively paying a few dollars every year so that you had a better outreach, you had better marketing opportunities, etc. But now, most recently, the whole digitization, the Amazons of the world certainly have indicated for a number of years the shift in how people market and, you know, and, and the power centers are yet another example of people's consumer habits uh, changing. I think that we, as the government, as technology advances, there is absolutely no need for us at this day and age for our local small businesses to be paying the ridiculously heavy telecom cost, the Wi-Fi connectivity, etc. I think the onus is on the government to step up and provide Wi-Fi to everybody that's out there, that these neighborhoods, once you sort of step off the streetcar, that you're pinged and say, welcome to whatever BIA, here is what's going on. So that information stuff, the ability to push that sort of stuff out, still a challenge out there, largest challenge of which is the actual cost of that. Another important insight emerged during the pandemic that highlights the role of small businesses in our communities and their connection to what's happening every day on our streets. For those who own or work in a storefront business, interacting with people experiencing homelessness and facing mental health challenges is nothing new. However, over the past two years, the cracks in our social systems magnified by the pandemic have made these issues more visible and have placed Main Street businesses on the front lines. Judy talks about the intersection between businesses and broader social issues. The huge increase in street-involved populations, I think, has been a surprise. And main streets in a growing number of locations and communities have become the front line, really, in dealing with the crises created by homelessness, mental health issues, the opiate and substance abuse issues. The main street businesses and their employees deal with vandalism and theft at a greatly escalated rate. De-escalation training for their staff is getting organized to help them deal with people with mental health issues or who are threatening them. And basically having to learn for the first time how to work with their, the community's social and public health agencies and advocating for change on that front, whereas previously they really kind of didn't, I mean, I'm not 
obviously overgeneralizing, but by and large viewed social issues as a responsibility of other groups. Now business communities are recognizing that they also have to get involved in dealing with social issues. A lot of the business improvement area organizations are spending a lot of time figuring all of that out for their businesses and holding workshops and things on the escalation training, who to call if there's an emergency beyond 911 because the police may not be able to get there in time, that kind of thing. Small businesses are creating jobs. Many are leading the way in paying higher wages. Those keeping the doors open were at risk during the pandemic, while many workers were able to work safely from home. In some cases, at the peak of the lockdowns, the people behind the counter were the few we interacted with in person outside of our own households. These small businesses have also directly faced the social challenges intensified over the past two years. Main Street businesses help to beautify our streets, support community initiatives, and create Create events that bring us out of our homes. They are what make our communities unique and desirable places to be. For all that they give, they are navigating an increasingly uneven playing field that disproportionately favors big business. It is impossible to talk about the future of small business and not discuss Amazon. The growth of Amazon has paved the way for e-commerce to grow and has made online sales accessible to businesses big and small. However, its foothold in our economy also means it wields a tremendous amount of power. Some argue too much. The Institute for Local Self-Reliance, or ISLR, studies the impact of Amazon on small business. Its work to survey businesses and capture stories of Amazon's business practice places Amazon firmly on the negative side of the ledger in terms of its effect on the businesses selling through its platform. The ILSR points to the high cost of doing business. Amazon takes about 30% of each sale. In 2019, this added up to $60 billion just in seller's fees in Amazon. Amazon's pocket. The company aggressively pushes the fulfillment by Amazon or FBA service. Those businesses that opt out end up being pushed out of the prime location on the page for product listings. Essentially, they're punished for choosing to fulfill orders outside of Amazon. Aaron talks about Amazon and the impacts he has seen on small businesses here in Canada. I don't think many people have a good gauge on the impact that a monolith like Amazon is having. It's certainly, speaking from my experience, it's definitely been a mixed bag. On the one hand, the overwhelming narrative we've heard from our customers is that they don't want to support Amazon. They want to support a local business. On the other hand, we have customers, or <laughs> hopefully future customers, that will save 100 bucks by buying from Amazon, and they will take that opportunity. So... For us, it's a mixed bag. We, we've been around a long time, so we understand that we fit in a fairly competitive market position compared to Amazon. People definitely want that in-person interaction when they have the option. Speaking more broadly, that's where it gets difficult. I think that a lot of our uh, the BWA members are focused on niche industries where they rely on that one-to-one personal touch to be able to sell their product. The type of customer that will be driven to that experience is probably not the type of customer that buys a lot from Amazon anyway. 
And I think that's actually a huge benefit to the BWA membership as we continue growing it because we are looking for those kinds of businesses. And I think the echo that we're seeing from the last 20 years of online commerce is that for those last 20 years, we've been focused on how do we, how do we drive prices down? How do we create the best value for consumers? Well, there's a difference between consumers and customers. I think that the businesses of the BWA, my business, Anita's business, we're focused on customers. Customers are people. Consumers are a group. And we want to focus on people. And I, I think you see this from millennials, even, even from, you know, I should say from all generations, but we definitely are starting to see this echo sentiment coming from the generation that is coming after millennials. And a lot of them are, are ditching their phones because they grew up with them. And they're like, oh, this is, this is really bad for me. Why, why should I be able to buy something that's $200 with one click and without really thinking about it? And I see a lot of those younger folks coming into my store. I see them going into other stores disconnected from this mass consumer market. And they have made that decision to become customers. So I think that there is this echo sentiment that is rising and we are going to see less and less people deciding to buy goods imported to Canada. We're, we're certainly have seen over the last couple of years, businesses start up with a Canadian or North American oriented focus, manufacturing focus, selling focus. And I think that really is going to be a trend that continues for a good number of years because people are now willing to spend more for good quality they're willing to spend more for a great interaction and they're willing to spend more to develop that relationship because they know it will benefit them, they know it will benefit their community. Next, let's look at the opportunities ahead. Various foresight reports on the future of retail point to the need for businesses to be online. Many of the shifts in how we buy that took place during the pandemic out of necessity are here to stay. Buying online and picking up in store is an option that customers continue to use. Consumer surveys and purchasing patterns point to the ongoing demand for online and curbside sales options. This hybridization of in-person and online presence and sales is referred to as bricks and clicks, or fidgetal, a combination of physical physical, and digital. Being omnichannel is a strategy for creating an easy, seamless experience across these customer touch points, whether online, on the phone, or in bricks and mortar stores. It is discussed by many leaders in this space as the new normal for businesses poised for the future. This is not just as easy as launching a website. Transitioning to a mix of online and physical sales requires a shift in how a business functions, including possible changes to human resources and its physical footprint. Businesses that offer online sales and in-store pickup need to consider fulfillment and shipping, especially as post-pandemic consumers have now become accustomed to one-day shipping. Data shows that a majority of online shoppers abandon their virtual shopping carts once they learn that shipping times exceed three days. To meet this demand, small businesses may need to change the layout of their stores, giving less space to sales and more to fulfillment. Some experts point to bricks-and-mortar spaces becoming showrooms for customers to pick up and try on items and then return home to purchase online 
online and have delivered at home. Instead of making room for putting items on display, the bulk of inventory stays in a space designed for quick fulfillment and shipment. This space may be part of the storefront or located off-site somewhere close by in a micro-fulfillment center. In this vision, future stores will offer experiences, not just goods, and will increasingly integrate technology to help customers navigate stores and interact with products. Likewise, service-based businesses may also get in on selling goods, offering accessories or other physical products that enhance a customer's experience of what they offer. You can imagine that this kind of change in a business's operation, physical structure, and use of technology will require significant time and financial investment, things that small businesses often run short on. As we discussed, for many businesses, just meeting the rent each month can be the difference between opening their doors and shutting them for good. While this vision for the future of stores shows a changing mix of interaction and consumer experience, what is the reality for businesses now? I spoke with Anita and Aaron about how the shift to online sales during the pandemic has fit into their business models. In our industry, less than like 10% of decisions are made by purchasing online. And I've been in the e-commerce retail space since 1999-2000. So I could easily say that there is actually this thing that we call as the sweet spot when it comes to selling things online. And quite frankly, those are basically things that are under $50. You're not going to make major purchasing decisions that are exclusively online. So as much as you might buy, like it's not hard for us to see something online and spend $20, right? It's harder if you're buying a $10,000 engagement ring. Yes, websites exist, but you have to trust those websites. And a lot of people do. But regardless of that, less than 10% of those decisions based on the e-commerce research are happening online, especially for my industry. When I look at um, reports of online shopping across the retail space, I think it's still under 20% if I'm not mistaken. I think that the reality is people, even um, millennials and Gen Z, they are actually making the bulk of their purchases in person. We haven't had a complete transformation of selling things completely exclusively online. And what happens oftentimes is people end up going to a store, taking a look at the product, and then maybe price comparisons happen online, and then they decide whether they want to buy it in person or online. The nice thing is, even in that case, you might go back to your local store and make a deal with them and ask them for a discount, which is often the case, right? I think that we can't depend exclusively on things being sold online for a lot of industries. I think when uh, Anita, when you got started in e-commerce in 1999, I remember being in high school still. And then a couple of years later, I went to college for business. And one of my professors at the time said, I just bought a shirt for the first time in my life on the internet. And it was such a monumental moment in 2004. And now it's like, <laughs> I, I was looking at shirts last night. <laughs> like, I, I, will, I will spend $500 right now on 10 shirts. Um, so it's, I, but I, I think the point that you bring up that is valuable is that people are social creatures and we do want to talk to somebody before we make a purchasing decision, whether it's a significant other, whether it's even your kids, whether it's a friend, you're going to talk about it. And in a lot of cases, the person you're going to go talk to, like you said, Anita, is somebody at a store where you can feel the object. If it is an object where you can 
touch it, you can test it out. We see that a lot with our products uh, when people come to test out electric scooters. And they may not buy from us initially. Uh, and in fact, we know that a, a portion of people that come test ride devices from our store, they'll go buy it on Amazon or from Costco. But we know that they have had a great experience with our staff. And, you know, after the fact, the next time they buy, they're probably coming to us. We 100% know they, they are coming back to us when they need service. So by creating that type of environment and atmosphere in a business, um, you, you can actually drive sales back to in-person pretty easily. The, the final thing I'll say about uh, online sales is like, it's a great forum for experimentation. <laughs> and we've actually found uh, a really interesting avenue there with accessories where people will buy something for 20, 30, 50 bucks and not really think about it. But for bigger purchases, people still want to be in person. And it's been an interesting shift to see as well, the move for service-based industries, how they've adapted to online purchasing as well. Uh, I look at the rise of co-working spaces, for example, for a lot of digital businesses as a way of, as a bit of a pushback from people saying, oh yeah, like you can work from home. Well, you want to work from home for a bit, but then you want to be around people. So co-working spaces, I think there are three that I know of that are opening in the next month in downtown Toronto, and there are already quite a number in the city. So from a service business perspective, there is always that desire for connection, that desire to meet your customers in a space that is welcoming, regardless of what you're selling. A common theme that you hear from these conversations is that online is here to stay, but also that it will never fully replace the desire for human interaction and the need to talk with someone with expertise to help with making a purchasing decision, especially for a bigger ticket item. Businesses of the future will need to be online in some shape or form, that's clear. One of the solutions is helping small businesses figure out what that can look like and how to get there. An example of an initiative aimed to help businesses transition online is Digital Main Street. John started Digital Main Street a few years before the pandemic, as it became clear that online sales were only going to grow. Over the last two years, demand for it has grown exponentially and has moved beyond a Toronto offering to become a Canada-wide program. John talks about Digital Main Street and how it is helping businesses get online. Uh, back in 2014, in anticipation and, and understanding of what was happening on Main Street, being as embedded and hearing from local small businesses on a regular basis, I am the founder of a program uh, called Digital Main Street, where it became very clear to us that we needed to help local small businesses move from brick and mortar to bricks and clicks if they were to survive, if we wanted to continue to have the hubs and, and the gathering places. So the, the brick and mortar side of it is important, but in order for them to succeed in today's marketplace, it was very important to help them shift into the digital world, into the new technology. When COVID hit, it all absolutely accelerated the, the need. We started lockdowns and businesses couldn't entertain customers within their establishments, etc. So shifting online 
was almost instantaneous. Unfortunately, we had our program effectively running for about four years already. So we were able to deal with some of the hiccups and really strengthen that program. So when COVID hit, we ourselves, to overuse a commonly used word over the last few years, were able to pivot and accommodate the businesses that needed that instant online presence. And uh, we did that with the help of the province and the Fed in terms of that. And we've got testimonials that clearly indicate that if it wasn't for their ability to use Digital Main Street and go online, that they wouldn't be in business because that was the only transaction, the only sales they were making throughout most of the hardcore shutdown period. So, um, you know, the Digital Main Street itself and by extension, the BIAs and the concept of working together was what allowed them to make it through. It was still difficult, very difficult, but at least it kept a few dollars coming through, especially if they were the ones that ended up joining the BIAs and programming and Digital Main Street. So again, uh, thousands of businesses had been converted very quickly to have a presence, to have an understanding, and to have some goals and objectives and a bit of a plan on their digital journey. Again, nothing will replace that presence because that is community, local, economic, and social well-being of neighborhoods is directly related to the success of an active commercial area and how Main Street goes so goes the rest of the neighborhood. And that is what's become, again, even more clear through COVID, keeping people active, whether it's a cafe TO program to bring people back onto the street. So a number of initiatives that took place through that period were integral, really, in not only survival, but we're finding the same thing in the recovery right now. You know, we have moved Digital Main Street to a national pan-Canada thing. We programs Digital Main Street is the program of choice out in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, the Atlantic, thanks to the assistance of CDAP, Canadian Digital Adoption Program that the federal government is funding. So the trend of small businesses, BIAs, which are right across the country now, is to help businesses move into that digital presence. It's not going away. Consumer habits are such that more and more consumers are purchasing things online. And that's where Digital Main Street is taking us, and we continue to support them. You know, we keep on adding to to Digital Main Street to make sure that small businesses and consumers are confident uh, in playing in that area, whether it's cybersecurity and training small businesses on, on how to make sure they not only protect themselves, but their customers. So that's an evolving thing as in any other consumer-based initiative. And I think we as a society are shifting very quickly and small businesses need to be aware and a part of that in order to, uh, to keep on succeeding. While helping businesses navigate the digital realm is a critical piece of assisting small businesses become more future-proof, it must also be part of a broader systems approach aimed to ensure that businesses can thrive in our communities creating spaces that help welcome new and old customers to visit and keep coming back to business areas is key. This is where placemaking comes in. Judy has extensive experience working with municipalities to help design spaces where businesses can grow and communities can thrive. She discusses placemaking and examples of successful approaches to building community. 
to me, placemaking means creating spaces that people remember, value, and really want to be in. So that can be at the macro level. The community is a place. I love my town. I love my city. And it can also be at the micro level. You know, there's this cool little park at such and such of an intersection that I just love to go and watch the people playing with their dogs and their children. So it's a space that's memorable. Being there usually creates a visual memory of the experience, and it usually has positive associations. So, you know, it involves other senses, sounds, smells, taste, feel. It can be a social experience, sitting and watching people passively and maybe collectively smiling at some cute little kid that's um, playing in the playground. Or it can include more intensive forms of socializing, dancing, meeting friends, all that kind of thing. People remember the location because of all these positive associations and how to get back to it, and they tell their friends about it. Main streets are great places to do placemaking around because it's integrative. It combines all of those positive experiences together. But you need places for people to do more than march along the sidewalk. You need to be able to to sit back and enjoy. You need to be able to stand out of the fray and chat. You need to be able to have conversations. You need to be able to go some business improvement areas, organize festivals. There needs to be the physical infrastructure to facilitate coming to the area and then enjoying it while you're there as opposed to just being purely transactional. And I think that's the direction that main streets are increasingly moving towards and and need to move towards in order to survive in the e-commerce world. I should note too, it's not just main streets that do this. So it's all the same principle applied indoors and shopping centers or in a park in the middle of an outdoor shopping center to the main street environment. As Judy discusses, built infrastructure like sidewalks wide enough to allow pedestrians to stop and chat, seating, green spaces, fountains, and public art, along with programming like community events and festivals, make memories and create spaces where people want to be. These are critical. But what happens when the mix of storefronts changes because of market forces? John discusses the changing mix of service businesses and the need for better policy to help ensure that our main streets remain places where people need and want to return on a regular basis for everyday needs. The professional offices are taking this opportunity of vacancies on our main street to effectively move from where you normally would find them, and that would be on the second story your dentist, your doctors, your lawyers. You know, we've all learned about the age curve uh, that is that has happened, that sort of bell curve that keeps on moving to the right with our baby boomers. And interestingly enough, Stats Canada just released some data that for the first time, the baby boomers aren't the biggest cohort out there, but we continue to move out there. So what these professionals that were traditionally in the second story were realizing that, hey, you know, guys like John Carew aren't going to be able to walk up those 25 stairs to come up to the second story and visit me. I better take this opportunity and move on to the main floor where he can cross the threshold to come visit me. So we are going to see a bit of a shift on the retail mix on main streets. And I'm just hoping that it doesn't pivot too much because there really isn't a compelling reason to stroll down the main street, take your walks and window gaze when you've got legal offices that have probably shut their windows off, dental offices, and I'm sure you've seen this, where you look into the office and 
you see somebody's hands in somebody's mouth as you're walking down Main Street. So there's the potential for missing teeth in the beautiful smile of a Main Street. And those are the things that collectively, and, and I, I put that on the role of the BIAs to try to avoid that, to try to bring an interesting retail mix that people will walk down Main Street as we try to engage all modes of transportation and pedestrian access and the like. To enhance that, you have to provide something compelling for people to stroll down the road, etc. And I think that is part of some of the new stuff in that retail mix strategy BIAs will need to engage in and the municipality in terms of their planning approvals on what they approve. Looping back to the current challenges that small businesses are facing, what happens as they are priced out of commercial rent and replaced with global chains with no local ownership or connections? What does Main Street look like when the store of the future responds to the demand for speedy home delivery and requires more storage and fulfillment space than retail space? And what happens to our communities when Amazon makes it more difficult for small businesses to opt out of its platform and pushes out small independent businesses? While there is not one silver bullet solution to ensure that our main streets remain places where small businesses thrive, there are a series of interconnected solutions that can help these businesses have an important place in the future of our communities. These solutions all come down to one thing, valuing connection over just transaction. As we have heard from those interviewed, they see the desire for people to be more than consumers and sets of data points for targeted online ads. These customers want to talk, ask questions, and support local businesses in their neighborhoods. This is what resonated during the pandemic and what will hopefully sustain going forward. What do these solutions look like in practice? One is supporting the initiatives discussed in this episode, ensuring continued funding and political will for programs like Digital Main Street and for placemaking initiatives. Another is addressing commercial rent rates and pressuring elected officials to do something. If they really care about what small businesses need, then they'll put in place regulations and oversight for out-of-control rent and unscrupulous landlords. Part of a systemic approach is also supporting city planning and policies that ensure that Main Street storefronts stay open to the public and not just replaced by a slew of medical and law offices or by the next generation of fulfillment centers and faceless delivery hubs. Perhaps most importantly, part of the solution is looking honestly at our own purchasing behaviors. Are we consistently choosing to buy online and not from a local business? If we are only looking at price and convenience and fail to support small businesses in our neighborhoods, we may not have local small businesses left. If we really appreciate and value these businesses, then we need to show it with how we spend in our communities. The consequences of losing more small businesses due to rising rent costs and unfair competition go beyond empty storefronts and fragmented communities. As Anita discusses, small business ownership has been a way for immigrants, women, and racialized communities to build a livelihood outside of systems that have often left these groups out. My parents immigrated to Canada in the 70s. Both of them had paid employment for a long time. However, they never were being promoted in their occupations. When we look at people of color or minority-owned businesses, they usually create their businesses because of the lack of opportunities that exist maybe in the mainstream. So what we're doing when we don't support small businesses is we're actually stifling creativity. We're stifling opportunities that may exist for newcomers 
or diverse people who are starting their own businesses. Likewise, if you look at women entrepreneurs and our business is also women owned, a lot of women start their own businesses because they've just given birth to a child or they're not getting consistent or steady employment opportunities. So it works with their schedule or works with their lifestyle. So when you cycle this, the people that are disproportionately largely far more impacted by these exorbitant rents are, again, people of color and minorities and women entrepreneurs, especially when we look at gentrification. Where does gentrification largely happen? It often happens in communities that are already either marginalized or often diverse. So you have this disproportionate impact in terms of diversity as well. A future that includes thriving small businesses must include more support, not just in words, but through public support and how we spend and policies aimed to make rent and other expenses fair and reasonable. And our communities built for making connections, not just transactions. People love people. They love getting out. I think that part of retail will continue to thrive. I think retail needs to be inviting to people, focus on the non-transactional parts of shopping, but make the transactions as, as convenient and easy as possible. Storytelling, the personal touch, all of that kind of thing, I think will thrive because people want it. People want to get out also and socialize. So places where you can gather and chat, as we've talked before, either informally or in more formal settings. I think we have to look at our demographics, too. And so five or 10 years, what's going to be the main, who is going to be the main market? And so paying attention to those demographic slices is also quite key to understanding where we're going. And what I've seen uh, about Generation Z, so far Generation Z seems to be much more stay at home than the millennials were at the similar age. So whether or not Generation Z gets more social acumen, you know, wants to get out of the parents' basement, so to speak, and explore the city more, again, something else that still is to be determined. The millennial and the baby boom, they are swells in the population, so they will continue to command the market for the next little bit. But it's sort of looking at what those broad demographic trends want to do as well will inform what retail will look like over the next five or 10 years. I personally am quite optimistic that retail will be still with us. I think the other really interesting challenge, though, from a built form perspective, is what to do with the areas in the suburbs to adapt our physical structures as we intensify main streets and build more condominiums and apartment buildings. That's what we're trying to encourage from a big city building perspective is encourage greater densification, which is a good thing. But when it happens on the main street, when we redevelop those old spaces that have been accessible to small business, what will happen to the small businesses? Will they still be accessible? So there is a growing number of people who are starting to scratch their heads about that, looking at how do you make the new spaces we build that are built primarily for the upper floor residents, how do we make them work for retail ground floor and for small businesses? And um, it's something that has to be consciously thought of because something I learned a few years ago, which I hadn't appreciated before, is how specialized the construction and development industry is. You've got developers who are familiar with building residential buildings 
And you've got developers and architects who are experienced in building retail buildings. And until five years ago, in Ontario at least, they didn't talk to each other. So residential buildings would be built and the ground floor just was not functional from a retail perspective. Gradually, uh, people have tried to develop retail guidelines and design manuals which inform residential developers about the kinds of things they have to think about. Some of those principles are being built into zoning bylaws, but it's still at an early stage of development. So the whole question about how we intensify our main street and our shopping centers that were built and are now archaic, how to intensify them while still keeping them good retail spaces and good parts of city building, I think is a future challenge. And it's going to become something we're going to have to grapple with over the next five or 10 years, or we're basically going to have a ground floor that is kind of sterile, which would really be a shame. Last few years, especially during my time as the president of Corktown, many of the businesses down there were retail focused. They are Main Street businesses because we're talking about Main Street businesses from across Ontario and Canada. And I think from a vision perspective, when you look at what Main Street retail is going to look like in the next five to 10 years, I don't think it's going to look very much different simply because of my last answer. People are looking for that personal interaction. What I think we will see is businesses, even retail businesses, adopting certain service techniques. One of our members is Broad Lingerie, and they are highly focused on a personal interactive environment where they do one-on-one appointments and nobody else is in the store and they will block off an hour for that person to come in, do their appointment, and just feel comfortable in that space. I think a lot of retail businesses that can do that are starting to adopt those types of ideas and techniques into their businesses. So I don't think you're going to see a lot of differences in look and feel. I'm going to throw back to the idea that it is dependent on making sure that we can still have Main Street and that we can still have these businesses and that they're not priced out of the market on Main Street in hamlets and small towns, cities, and places like Toronto. If they start getting priced out, then we start to see chain stores. We start to see these unique places where you can have these interesting, engaging interactions, you start to see them reduced to quick service, to quick interactions with businesses that are well-known, but don't provide that level of community care and that level of customer care. What I want to see, though, is more of what we have now. And I want to see more businesses out on the street. And what I mean by that is, more community days, more sidewalk parties. Over the last two years, we've all gotten outside more and we've seen the benefit of these types of activities and these types of engagements to the point where in Toronto, they launched a temporary program called Cafe Tion, which is now being made permanent. Get businesses out on the street, get people on patios, I think we're going to see a lot more retail businesses doing that as well. And a lot of service businesses even, (laughs) you know, like you go into a service business, you get a quote. Well, why not do that outside? So I think that we're going to see a lot of businesses. And I hope this is 
I hope this becomes true. We'll see a lot of businesses in the summer in Canada. We'll see them outside. We'll see them engaging with the community that way instead of the community having to go into a store with a particular purpose. We'll create a greater community fabric by getting businesses out. Small businesses along our main streets offer more than just goods and services. They are integral to the fabric of a healthy community and a thriving society. Increasingly, these businesses are leading the way on pressing issues and reflect the realities of daily life in our communities. As technology offers new ways to interact and shop, it will be critical to maintain a place for small businesses in an increasingly digital future. Conscientiously, we must create and support a systems-based approach to ensure our main streets remain places for us to connect and not just transact where people and planet are valued over profit, and where business owners are not just faceless boards and shareholders, but are our neighbors who are equally invested in our communities. This kind of holistic support for Main Street is part of a future where humane capitalism thrives, where we choose to intentionally engage with businesses and organizations that align with our values, and with a shared goal to design a more equitable, kinder, more humanly connected future. Thank you to the entrepreneurs and thought leaders interviewed for this episode, for sharing your time, expertise, and for your efforts to build communities where we want to live and meaningfully connect with others. Thank you to Leslie Corbet, who assisted in the editing and production of this episode, and to Alexander Burton, who is engaged in research for this podcast series. To learn more about those interviewed, follow the links included in this episode's description. Thank you for listening to the Designing a Humane Future podcast. Be sure to subscribe to listen to upcoming episodes in this series. Take care and be well.